0: Hey everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 53. Yes, good news, we're back after a little break. I graduated from the Harvard Business Analytics program in September and have been working on new episodes, which of course will release every Tuesday. Today I'm speaking with Oren Zaslansky, the CEO at Flock Freight. We discuss why the shipping industry is ripe for disruption, tips, for outsiders of Silicon Valley to raise capital and what to look for when selecting a board of directors. Enjoy. I'm here with Oren Zaslansky, the founder and CEO of a company called Flock Freight. And uh, I'm really excited to have Oren on. He's actually a, a longtime entrepreneur. I know he hates that word, he just told me. Um, but he's been founding businesses for quite a while. So, Oren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, before we get started, I always like to ask, start with this question because I feel like it's a, I feel like everyone always has a different answer no matter whether they're a founder of a company, an investor, or just an employee. Um, I like to ask who you are and what do you do? So what, what like on a day-to-day basis, you know, get, what, do you, what do you do and who are you at the, at the company that you're at, Flock Freight?
1: Yeah, I guess there's a few ways I could think about this. Um, there's almost the existential who am I which uh, these days as I'm working more and more and more and getting less time with with my wife and kids, um, I I seem to be reflecting on that question uh, more often. And then there's, of course, the sort of professional persona and how I spend my time. I think who am I at heart, though, is a couple things. One is is a founder, I really do love starting new things. Um, I like the idea of, of ideating and working with really smart folks and then taking that inevitable giant leap and saying, you know, I think we have the courage as a group to, to bring this thing to market. Um, you know, what do I do? Uh, it really evolves, uh, as the stages and scale of the business change. Um, currently, uh, I'm in fundraising mode. So for those other founders and entrepreneurs out there, I'm sure they can um, relate to that. So my mind is very much in both a quantitative as well as qualitative state. So kind of quantitatively, we're looking at all the data, all the metrics, the traction, how the numbers look, uh, th- these numbers look great. Those numbers, I wish they looked a little better. Um, and on the qualitative side, it's the story, it's the narrative, you know, how we pull this whole thing together, explaining how we got to where we are, the good and the bad, um, and where we believe we're gonna take this and, and all the timing and sequencing and how it's gonna unfold. Um, I also spend a ton of time recruiting, you know, we're constantly building out um, the exec team and, and the management team. Uh, at the end of the day, that's, that's why I do this, I think more than anything else. Which probably, I guess, loops back to a little bit of who am I. So, in addition to being a founder, I'm a coach. Uh, I, I, I get far, far more joy out of helping others um, grow and evolve and and become the best version of themselves than I do to to do any one thing myself. Um, I've I've had a lot of of um, opportunities to do things, and I've I've done a few things okay, and there's there's joy in that. But for me, at this point in my life, getting to support other people's growth is is just a lot more interesting. So. Spent a lot of time coaching and and trying to help people find the best version of themselves as well.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think as a founder, that's almost that's almost part of the job description, right? I mean, I, I personally have felt that way as well. And, and and but I would like to kind of jump back to what you were saying about fundraising and also running the business. And it's 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 funny because to me, when I when I when I first um, launched uh, Kaya, which was an analyst company I started back in 2014. And raise money for it. And uh, we, I raised some money before we even had a product or anything like that. It was just an idea, you know, that, of mine. And then we went on and we built the product. But when we were looking to raise more money, I, was, I always was of the, the mindset, well, how hard could it be to run the business and also raise money, right? <laughs> and um, turns out it's quite hard. <laughs> yeah pretty so, <laughs> yeah i mean from from you know from a, from your perspective how do you how do you kind of balance the two how do you how do you balance running the business which is obviously super important to make sure that you're you're, you're meeting customer demand and, and 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 your product is working um and also at the same time going out there and raising money which is also essentially a full-time gig in and of itself
1: yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll add a third wrinkle to it, and that's um, not making the tragic mistake of shaping your business around the fundraising process, which is a really slippery slope as well. You're getting all this feedback about, well, we like this about your business. We don't like that about your business. But if you have conviction that you're building the right business, you you really don't want to change the business you're building in order mm-hmm. to appease a potential investor. But But in answering that first question… Um, you know, it's very stage dependent for me. So, uh, as with you, I, I, did my first, uh, venture capital, you know, institutional raise on a deck, on an idea, uh, on a dream, I'll admit very, very <laughs> aspirational. Um, and, uh, you know, that was very hard fundraising because it was a full-time job, but that was okay. I had the, 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 the ability to dedicate myself to that. And then, you know, the next subsequent rounds, I think I've raised six or seven at this point in this business, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a different set of challenges. You know, where's the business in its evolution? You know, when we first started, I was, you know, picking up the phone, making dials for doing sales, working directly with head of engineering on, on daily tactical product decisions. Yep, been there. Um, working with the <laughs> operations teams. Yeah, I mean, you know, doing every little bit of it, and you literally feel like you don't have enough um, arms and feet to hold phones and, and work on computers. We're a little bit further along in, in our story now, so I have an extraordinary senior leadership team. I think what I've learned to do at this point is I'm working more on quarterly, semi-annual and annual kind of objectives. So they're longer timelines. I'm a little bit less relevant in every hour of what's going on in the business. Although, you know, if we're struggling to make a number, then I I find myself back inserted into that hourly. And sometimes that sneaks up on me and and I don't see it coming. And it can be very disruptive. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for me is I consider fundraising, um, believe it or not, more of a qualitative exercise than quantitative and so it's very creative for me. It's a lot of ideation and just finding that alone time to really uh, spin the facets of what we are and what we can be and, and what's the right way of communicating what is an incredibly complex business in a vast, massive industry. And how do I how do I how's my vision become translated in you know a one hour pitch where you really only get 40 to 45 minutes and then there's 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A. Um, right. it's, it's an interesting process, to say the least. I will say I have learned one thing um, a couple of rounds ago was a particularly tough one I was doing what what people affectionately call the sandhill shuffle you know mm-hmm. going up and down sandhill road meeting with you know all you know with a backpack and you can just walk from door to door to door to the, the biggest vcs on on the planet earth really it's 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 extraordinary how they've configured themselves um, and I kind of slipped beneath the surface in terms of um, my team was noticing like hey you're just in this room right now but you're not here are you and, I, and I, it was a very powerful lesson for me that um, if I'm going to be sort of intellectually, if not sometimes emotionally, unavailable to my team, I need to just recognize that and call that out. Like they're super talented. They, they do what they do far better than I can. So this time around, I've kind of called it out and said, yeah, I'm in this room right now, but I'm not really here. And I think it's been very helpful to just kind of own that um, and make sure that they realize that don't, don't maybe, you know, I'm limited, of course, don't expect too much of me. Um, this is kind of all encompassing. And when you really need me to run the business, when something very kind of urgent or important or high level really requires me, I've actually asked them, you got to kind of shake me, you got to come and get me and you got to pull me into this thing, um, which, you know, obviously means we just have a ton of trust for one another that they know when to do that and when not right. to do that. Right.
0: No. And that and that's super important. I, and it's super like it, 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 it's, it's just such an important thing that you recognized about yourself, and to be able to have a team that can, uh, that can do that, but uh, you know, but but realizes when the right time is, uh, like you said, it's a it's a trust thing, and I think I think that's I think that's great that you that you had that realization, and now, and and you communicated it to your team so that way you can avoid that kind of happening in the future.
1: But, um, yeah, I mean it's that yeah. it's that uncommunicated kind of rhythm and flow that you need to have yeah. with your partners where they can recognize it. Absolutely. So let's talk let's talk about
0: shipping, which is what Flock Freight is all about. First of all, tell us a little bit what Flock Freight is and how you got into the shipping industry in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I can kind of dramatically say that and I have said this many times in my fundraising pitch that I was born into freight. Um, I've been in freight literally my whole life my parents worked for a a relatively large household goods mover. So if you were gonna move across town or move across country or across the planet the company they worked for would would move your home Your your household goods. So my entire childhood was spent around it And it just seemed like the most normal thing in the world when I was in high school uh, First my mom then later my dad left the employment of that company and started their own freight brokerages specializing in the, the movement of household goods particularly for the for the military um, so by the time I came out of college at age twenty one, I had the entrepreneurial bug because I had been exposed to it, I had seen it. but and that's not that unusual. But what I think is more unusual is that I wanted to start a trucking company at age twenty one. And that's pretty unusual. Um, so I capitalized it by factoring my receivables. Um, I'm hoping most of your audience is not very familiar with uh, factoring it is incredibly expensive debt you know it's you generate an invoice you send it to a lender who then immediately gives you capital um, which is great and it's the only way I could have gotten started um, as debt but at the same time you know I was paying uh, 22 23 percent like all in fully loaded for money which yeah I mean a credit card would have been less expensive Um, (laughs) and uh, can you imagine and, uh, you know, that cost of capital actually exceeded my gross margin contribution. So, you know, maybe my trucking company was generating 20% gross profit, but I was paying 22, 23% yeah, on every yeah. dollar. So it just became about working capital. You know, could I, could I collect the money before I had to pay the money? Um, and uh, you know, you find a way to make it work because that's what you do when you're young and, and too foolish to know that it's probably not going to work. And thankfully, I didn't know that. And so <laughs> I, I I made it work. Um, so I built that trucking company up and it was, you know, a national full truckload carrier, not especially innovative necessarily, but I'm really proud of the work that the team did. And, and uh, you know, we provided a lot of super valuable essential services to to many, many different customers um grew that and then kind of felt like i was ready for what's next i put leadership in to kind of run the day-to-day and um i aspired to move up the value chain at least as i saw it at the time into freight brokerage you know where you're kind of that middleman who can offer in my mind very complex solutions that were more than just sort of move a truck from a to b but rather um different what we call modes of transportation so a mode would be like parcel which is fedex ups another mode would be Full truckload just get the whole truck full which was the the type of trucking company i had owned Um, another mode would be less than truckload or ltl which is what flock is is currently specializing in Um, ltl is the idea of you know i have four pallets of some manufactured good that needs to ship from me the manufacturer to you the customer who purchased uh, the goods that i i've made and sold to you um the ltl paradigm is one of um what we call hub and spoke so if uh, if I ask you to kind of conjure the belly of the beast of UPS, I, I think you can pretty well imagine it. You can see big trucks and little trucks and warehouses and terminals and forklifts and labor and union labor, and then of course also aircraft. Um, if you remove aircraft from that visualization, that's actually what the LTL hub and spoke looks like. Super high CapEx, super high OpEx. There's really only 25 LTL, we call them carriers or or trucking companies. That, that control uh, over 80% of a $65 billion a year market in the United States. Um, LTL alone is 65 billion every year in the US. So these are huge spaces. Uh, the Hub and Spoke is a hundred year old innovation. Um, you know, the idea of I'm gonna ship my two pallets from San Diego to New York, and it's gonna go through seven terminals until it finally um, gets to destination is very costly. Um, you know, versus the alternative of if you could fill up a, a big truck, you would certainly do that. It's much more efficient and less expensive, but you do you know, you can fit 26 pallets in a big truck. If I only have four pallets to ship, then I'm going to ship it LTL. If I had 26 pallets to ship, I would ship it full truckload. What Flock is doing is algorithmically uh, creating carpools of these LTL freight shipments. So one of the ways of thinking about it is what if I could just sell you your share of that big truck? like simply stated you've got four pallets to ship um i will have lots and lots of customers who all have again we'll just say four pallets of freight traveling along kind of similar lanes and corridors we will use some incredibly sophisticated uh software that will create these carpools your freight will never see the inside of a terminal anywhere ever will never come off the truck and you can ride share in that big truck and only pay your pro rata cost of that truck. Um, and there's a few reasons why as a customer, you'd want to do that. Um, and that's that quality is much, much higher. Um, in the LTL hub and spoke, you have tremendous damage. Uh, damage to freight does not really occur, ironically, due to transportation due to the movement of it over the road. It, it almost all happens due to handling the loading and the unloading of the freight. So in the full truckload uh, industry, you load it on the truck, you drive to destination, you unload it, it's pretty straightforward, there's no damage. In the LTL industry, you're loading and unloading that freight, five, six, seven, eight times between origin and destination, so there's a lot of damage. There's, of course, loss and theft because it's being, you know, touched over and over again, Um, and uh, you also have a a real problem with reliability of pickup times and delivery times. The LTL industry, due to the complexity of the hub and spoke, it's not a knock against those operators that they don't care and they're not working hard. It's really more a knock against the mousetrap. You know, when you have 300 terminals that you you own and operate um, in order to facilitate the movement of that four pallet shipment between origin and destination, you're just going to um, have a lot of imprecision as it relates to the movement of the freight. Versus we bring a solution where the big truck is just going to swing by, your one of four pickups he's making that day, and then they're going to drive to destination and make those deliveries. So our transit times, the amount of time it takes to get your goods from from you to, to, to your customer, are anywhere from 25 to 50 percent faster. Um, there's zero damage, no loss, no theft. So, for me, the big idea was to transition my career from having been, you know, a two-time founder working in an industry uh, bootstrapping, as we affectionately call it, you know, using my own money, and by my money, I mean bank debt, um, into um, founding um, something where I decided, you know, I don't want to work in the industry anymore. I want to work on the industry. I feel like I've been at this my whole life, adult, if not child, Uh, I felt really ready to say I I can take a big swing um, at look at reorganizing and fundamentally attempting to change and improve the entire U.S. transportation industry. And that's that's why I started Flock. And that's why I believe we've been successful at pulling in the world's smartest, most talented, most dedicated people, because our purpose, our mission is is really not just to build a big business or to take a company public or to make a lot of money quite frankly we believe we're changing the u.s transportation industry and and as such creating our mark on on changing the world
0: so so first of all congrats on all of this i think i I think the the freight and shipping industry is probably one that is a huge it, it, it is a huge backbone of the united states in terms of getting. Uh, things you order online from point A to point B, you know to deliver to you uh, So and I, I, I'm I'm honestly kind of shocked that it's taken this long for something like this To uh, to kind of appear so a couple questions one. I mean so who like who are your customers in like and and and, and um, You know are, are they the trucking companies? Are they the? Uh, are they the direct-to-consumer kind of companies You know who who are you working with on who do you help kind of with your technology uh, get their products to their consumers in in a more efficient fashion?
1: Yeah, our customers right now are really the manufacturer, otherwise known as the ship. So it's the person who's making the goods that get put onto pallets for purposes of shipping. We go to them and we say we've got kind of a bigger, faster, stronger mousetrap. We we can get your goods to your customer faster with zero damage, with much greater precision. Um, we will sell you a share of a big truck, quite frankly, as opposed to moving your freight through the LTL hub and spoke. The adoption um, that, and the, uh, the reception, I guess I would say, that we've been receiving has been extraordinary. Uh, quite, quite honestly, I'm a pretty ambitious guy. This is my idea, if not my baby. So obviously, I believe in it. But I've been taken aback at um, a customer's desire to see us win, like to do more than just, as I kind of said previously, build a big and successful business. Um, It's more than that. The the manufacturing community, the shipping community out there wants to see us change this industry. They're they're frustrated, they've been experiencing high prices and low quality since the dawn of time. And again, I I, I don't mean to be pejorative or take shots at this industry, It's, it's my industry, right? But rather, it's an opportunity, if not time, if, if not maybe overdue for reform, for a fundamental reorganization about how this whole thing works. So for now, we are exclusively playing in the B2B space for all sorts of reasons. Part of that is strategic in building a business, if not building a marketplace. You know, the customer acquisition costs would just be extraordinary if I was going after consumers. Um, so obviously, you know, we, we go after those points of aggregated volume where, you know, there's a manufacturer who needs to use me every single day um, versus a consumer who might use me a few times a year. Um, but also the business requirements are a lot more straightforward. We, we very much understand the use cases. There's less of them, quite frankly, when you're in a B2B environment than you are in a, in a B2C or C2C um so those are our customers we we definitely engage with the trucking industry right we are not we're, we're a tech company we're not an asset based trucking company as i've been in my past so um we go into the supply side market to the truckers and and they support us by moving these carpools these algorithmically created carpools of freight um but we we do it in a way that's just really simple and straightforward right like all the technology all the infrastructure that's gone into building these carpools is literally nothing short of rocket science and we have multiple nasa and darpa employees who work here in building this technology it's it's really unbelievable stuff um but to the world it's hey we'll sell you part of a big truck like i often Mm -hmm. think that it should be very simple and digestible and easy to intellectually understand if um you know if it takes us 20 minutes to unpack what our algorithms do to the customer, then I'm pretty sure that deal isn't going to come together.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that. You basically, you know, you need to sell them on, we'll get you, you'll get your products to the consumers or to where it needs to go faster, more efficiently and for cheaper uh, and and more secure. um, If you use our product, it doesn't really matter about the algorithm and what you developed uh, so much to them as long as it works, right? I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to.
1: Yeah, I think of it as the old features versus benefits, mm-hmm. right? So the features are pooling and algorithms and uh, what we call a hub less experience. If the traditional incumbents move it on the hub, we move it hub less or off the hub. I think it's much more exactly to your point about benefits, bigger, faster, stronger, you know, guaranteed pickup times, guaranteed delivery times, guaranteed no damage, guaranteed no loss and theft, guaranteed easy button, no friction at mm-hmm. competitive prices. You know, the the ultimate um, benefit is that we're bringing you all the great quality and efficiency of the truckload industry, uh, which is, by the way, $110 billion a year industry in its own right in the United States. We're bringing that $110 billion industry and infrastructure to the $65 billion LTL industry. The customers are, and the carriers, the, the truckers, by the way, it's the, the features, the complexity in it. It's not only uninteresting, I'd argue it's, it's, it's pretty confusing. Um, as opposed to saying, look, this is just going to be easier and of higher quality. Yeah. So let's, let's shift gears
0: slightly. I want to talk a little bit about, um, financing for companies. I know as, as a founder of, uh, of uh, two companies, um, you've, a, you alluded to that you raised money for, uh, for your first company using debt, um, how would you recommend? Uh, because obvious, obviously there are other options out there. There's obviously equity, you know, convertible notes, safes, things like that. Um, which uh, you know, uh, those type, the convertible note and the safe usually translate into equity at some point. Um, how how would you recommend a, a founder look and weigh those two options: debt for debt financing versus you know equity financing?
1: Yeah, I've thought about this a lot and and I get this question a lot, um, particularly from from young uh, aspiring founders and entrepreneurs will usually leap over the business strategy and ask me, like, how do I raise venture capital or how do I get that started? And my response is always, well, hang on a second here. I want to understand your business strategy. And they would say, well, what do you mean? I need a bunch of money to start my business. And I would say, well. You know uh, let me share my experience because rather than giving advice i'd rather share experiences and i would say you know in my first business i lacked any degree of visibility and, and certainly sophistication um to be able to go out and uh and raise venture capital but but thankfully i was starting a business that did not have that requirement um when i started flock i knew two things or eh, knew is a strong word i believed two things uh first was that um in order for this business model to work, a pooling model, you need to be big. You know what VCs love to say is at scale, um, mm. and that's actually true. <laughs> put rep, you know, put revenue aside and margins and public offerings and all that stuff. A carpooling model, you know, needs a lot of volume in in the network. This is a network effects business, pure and simple. So um, I knew it needed to be big, unlike my last businesses, which could be small to medium, and I could just have a great life and make a great living. This business would not work small to medium. It like actually needs to be big. Now there's air quotes around big, because what does big mean? Well, that's actually a complicated question. Um, The second part of it was we had first mover advantage. No one had ever done this before, um, and you know this was like my little invention. Nobody had automated this and created an algorithmic solution. So I wanted to move fast to take advantage of that first mover advantage as long as possible. So the way I thought about the business strategy was, I need to be big and I believe I should move fast because I have an invention that no one else yet sees. So if that's my business strategy, then out of that was born a financing strategy, which suggests, well, if you gotta be really big, you're gonna probably consume a lot of capital. And if you need to move really fast that's got rocket fuel written all over it so that that combination means venture capital so i'm going to go out and raise venture um for uh, so in my case i would argue there was no alternative we were going to raise venture capital and and convertible notes as you mentioned as 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 ultimately really an equity instrument albeit a a kind of fast and and less expensive means of, of bringing venture capital into the business um, so I guess my, my shared experience would be that. My advice to somebody who's asking themselves this question or asking others is, you know, think through your business strategy. Nobody should raise venture capital or equity for that matter because they think it's exciting or they think it's going to be cool and 100% sexy.
0: 100% on board with that.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, it yeah. is not for the faint of heart. And, Absolutely. you know, anytime, anytime you take other people's money, you need to be really respectful. Of, um, you know getting them their money back at the least and at the most a, a healthy and appropriate return so if you've got a business or a business idea um, that uh, lends itself to maybe moving more slowly or maybe bearing out higher margins or growing at a more organic pace and not the kind of exponential rates that that guys like me are expected or, or required then debt is fantastic I mean Bootstrapping my first two businesses was really the right way to do it. And living on the equity side and the venture side now, knowing what I know, yeah, I would do some things a little bit differently, and make some tweaks. But that does not mean that I believe those businesses should have been venture financed. Now, nobody was going to offer to venture finance a trucking company, anyways. So I don't suggest that that was even possible. But even Unless if it maybe were, it's automated. <laughs> yeah, it's self-driving robot trucking, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and there's a lot of that exciting stuff happening right now. So, but but I would really challenge people to think through what's your business strategy? What are the capital requirements over what period of time? What sort of returns do you think can be provided? And that can really help steer you toward you know, is traditional bank debt an option? Are grants an option? Are doing maybe a, a very modest angel round under safes or convertible notes uh, appropriate? Versus, you know, my experience where I said I'm building something that is meant to be very big, very fast. We're swinging for the fences. You know, for me, there was no angst over whether or not I should raise venture capital. I was going to raise venture capital. It was the only um, financing strategy that kind of lined up with our business strategy.
0: Gotcha, and I would agree with all of that. I mean, raising like when you're when you when you raise money and you take it, you know, from uh, an angel investor or an institutional venture capital firm, like you said. The, there's the the expectation you know that 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 you will get their money back and then some right that's the idea behind it if, if that wasn't the case they wouldn't be they wouldn't be doing that now that being said there are a lot of businesses that raise money and that 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 uh that fail that's you know but that's part of the that's part of i guess the game so to speak um but at no i i never i never was of the belief that you should that every business is a venture capital business. In fact, that's quite the opposite of what I believe in. So I'm 100% on board with that advice. I I think that you know either bootstrapping is is a great way of doing it. Uh, I've done that with Best Techie, and it's been super successful. With Kai, I did raise some money. Um, on, ultimately, that failed. But um, but really, you know. you have to weigh both the pros and the cons, right? You have to be like, all right. So because, and which we're going to get to, actually, when we talk about board, uh, you know, members of your board, which comes with raising money. Uh, But we're going to take a quick break, Warren. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by HRFs. So you have a website and you want to rank better? Of course you do. Ahrefs is designed to be an amazing all-in-one SEO tool. In fact, I've been testing it and it lets me do things like generate millions of keyword ideas, discover new trending keywords every month, examine the ranking history of my site's individual pages, and even identify content gaps and opportunities. They also just launched the latest beta of their Keywords Explorer product. The new keywords explorer features clickstream data from 10 major data sources including google youtube amazon bing and yahoo so now when you start seeing even more best techie all over the web you know who to thank go ahead check them out at ahrefs.com that's a h r e f s dot oh and feel free to tell them i sent you and we're back uh, Orin, so we were talking before about raising money, the the benefits of debt uh, versus equity and equity, you know, uh, either or. Um, and one of the one of the things that, that happens when you when you raise an equity round from a VC or an angel is typically that they they were, they, they require or they, they request that you give them a board seat, right? That's that's one of the big kind of asks, if you will. When, um, especially early on in, in a business when, when they want to make sure that they they can protect their investment to a certain degree, obviously, um, and have a say in, in what's going on and, and decisions that are being made for the business. Um, so I guess my question to you, being that you've done this uh, a bit, <laughs> is what do you look for when selecting your board member? And obviously, do you keep that Do you keep in mind that when you're raising it, especially at an institutional level, Series A, Series B and so forth, uh, oftentimes during those rounds, uh, you know, you get key members of the board kind of put in place by these firms. Uh, What should a founder consider when when uh, when that's happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the board conversation, um, it's actually quite fluid, which was surprising to me. I think I thought it would be more binary. You know, you take a check from a VC and a board seat comes along with it. Um, in my experience, it's it's been a, a little bit more kind of ambiguous than that. Some of it has to do with, I've got a, uh, a non-operating co-founder who's um, actually an academic, he's a business school professor and he's, you know, like a top five guy in the world at what he does. And he sits on a lot of boards, public and private. So from a governance standpoint, our earliest institutional seed investors felt like, well, Um, Oren's actually not flying alone on this from a pure governance standpoint, there's, there's a grown-up in the building. It's not me, it's the other guy, but Mm -hmm. he, he will make sure that we're doing everything really, really well on behalf of not only our, our VC, but on, on their LPs, right. Which are always standing behind the, the venture firms themselves. Um, board seats can also be, believe it or not, sometimes a negotiated item, meaning, um, you know, I think raising venture capital is the ultimate supply and demand. Kind of market where, um, you know, on the founder side, to a certain degree, you want to kind of control the numbers, you know, you want to kind of stay in power, so to speak, um, as long as is possible, knowing at some point the numbers will will tip out of your favor. Um, Ways of negotiating in every round that you do, I can give you, for instance, Is uh, Oren Zaslansky a named board member or is it the CEO of Flock Freight that is the board member? And you could say, well, what does it matter? Oren is the CEO. Well, but what if I'm not, you know? Maybe maybe not one day, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, there's several examples I'd rather not name names that we've seen play out in the media, (laughs) you know. Um, There's, you know, uh, shareholder rights and, you know, typically a founder like me would be the majority shareholder of the common stock versus the preferred, which is the the, the the stock you sell that people buy mm-hmm. um, and being kind of a sweat equity. And so you know, I'm majority shareholder of the common. that entitles me to a board seat. I'm also the CEO. that's a board seat. And if those two seats give me numbers, then it allows me to kind of uh, feel a little bit protected. but but once again, knowing that knowing a couple things, one is that those numbers will change over time. As you do larger and larger rounds, board seats absolutely come with it to the investor. And secondly, um, I have a fiduciary just like every director. Um, and I think even more than that, I have an obligation to my team that if I'm not the right person to do this, I need to be fully supportive, if not helpful on getting that right person in. I think there'll always be a place for me in this business. I am the founder. I'll always be the founder. I think I'm currently the right person to be CEO, but but my mind is open to the fact that that might change in a future state. I hope not. I work real hard every day to make sure that you know, I'm I'm growing and learning, and that I am the right person for the future of the business. But I have every reason to want this business to succeed more than um, to to have my name or title be CEO. So I right. kind it's, of it's put all that about out.
0: aligning the incentives correctly, right? So at the end of yep. the day, you you want the business to succeed, um, a because a it's your baby, right? But b because you know it it means that you do well also if it succeeds. So even if that means that you may not be the right person at this particular moment in time to be at the helm for example
1: yeah i mean you know it's all about the equity right you know so the the surprisingly whether a lot of founders know this or not like the salaries really aren't that high you know i am um you know the lowest paid guy on the on the executive team and and i think that's fine like that's okay i'm also the big uh, equity guy right um in the business and and i think that's appropriate as well so and, and I think the investors love that, you know, it's aligning the incentives with look, we got to pay the guy. He's got to make a living. But at the same time, we don't want him getting rich off a of paycheck, you know, like right, wealth right. will be built. If this business exits well, the preferred, the investors get paid first and then the rest of it gets dished out, um, to the rest right. of us. And, and, yeah. and I actually feel very aligned with that. I, that's like absolutely the right way of, of doing this.
0: hundred percent agree. I mean, and look, like these guys, you know, uh, we talked about who are investing in, in companies, you know and i think the key here is the preferred you know you have to look at the way um these types of businesses get paid back uh pay back their investors and their and their and their shareholders um in a particular order and preferred inve- and preferred stock investors get paid first um
1: you know when it comes to this stuff so Absolutely. And and yeah. hopefully without additional preferences, which gets right. into a little bit of the right, right, things, but I think, you know, the yeah, one that's extra. a whole other conversation. Yeah. I think absolutely. Um, yeah. I would love to throw in, you know, you'd asked about how I think about partners and investors. Sure. And and I would say, you know, this is something I actually learned from my first institutional VC who came in. It's a firm called Signal Fire in uh, San Francisco and the CEO founder there's um, Chris Farmer. And Chris has really, I mean, I'm a couple years older than him, but I feel like he's mentored me a lot more than, than the other way around. And one of the things he's really challenged me on, whether it's my team, uh, my executive team, or uh, when we're fundraising and we're bringing in you know, that next investor, because there's kind of always a next investor. And that's to think about these folks as partners and therefore who are the smartest right people to put around the table in order to drive my success. There's a peculiarity in the venture community that I didn't see, and I think many people don't see in the very beginning, and that's you just feel lucky if you get a check. Like right. God, somebody give me a million dollars. Somebody give me ten million dollars. Like that's crazy. I can't believe it. Thank you, thank you. Um, what What hopefully ends up happening is you realize that no, 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 this is very like rational. Well, as rational as any of these these uh, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> <aspects> of- <laughs> but that um but that you are you are valuable to that right? You're the founder. You've got a great big idea and you've got the willingness and the wherewithal to bring it to market. And that's uh, exceptional. It's definitely not the norm. And VCs know that because they're in the business of of looking for those people, for the, for jockeys, as they love to call us. It's not the horse, right? The business of the right, idea, It's right. the jockey, it's the founder and their ability to bring this thing to market and and, and succeed even when it gets really hard because it always does. And so um, what I have learned is that not as I'm pulling around together right now as we speak. this isn't about me getting the money at at the risk of you know sounding like a jerk like we'll we'll get the money we'll be okay but it's really rather about optimizing not just for price and for terms and board composition but it's about optimizing for really helpful smart partners so if i bring this firm in um then that's that partner and maybe they're going to be joining the board if not as a director probably as an observer and um how does that help me like i actually like to think about it I, i hope it doesn't sound selfish because the way these incentives are all aligned, they want us to, to, to win, right, and exit well, because that's how they make money. So I think about it is, how are you going to make me better, my team better? Are you a potential, believe it or not, there's a lot of really interesting strategic corporate venture um, uh, uh, investors out there. And you might say, hey, that guy will not only give me a $10 million check, but they can also potentially be a partner or a customer. So right. That's I was just I was just
0: gonna yeah I was just gonna say like like if Walmart came to you tomorrow and said we want to write you a 25 million dollar check and think of all the introductions that they can make for you along the way that's you know what I mean like to, to, to start uh, to be able to ship uh, and fill up those trucks uh, and get more customers like that would be huge I would think.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I I don't want to say too too much, but let's just say I 100% agree with your very specific thinking that uh, just made out. Um, And there's, by the way, it's actually, as you well know, a little bit more complicated because there are the WalMarts of the world we call CBC corporate venture um, or strategic investors, which they they don't love that that name. Right. Right. Um, But um, but there are also all sorts of tertiary organizations where some of these organizations organizations have set up separate um, investing entities that are meant to be more of the traditional financial investor, in part because of some of the stigma associated with strategic. Strategic usually means like you're not as smart as a financial investor, but, you know, and and we don't understand your incentives because maybe maybe you're investing in me to buy me. And that may sound great, but that may actually not be great. Right. Yeah. Um, Versus maybe you're. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you're investing in me because you want to learn about the space and I may say, "Hey, I just need the money. That's great. But but it also may not be great, right? Because you may yeah. not support me in the future. And that's actually very important in the the milestone process of of raising round after round. So um, I've really focused now on, you know, who's a great partner? Can they be a customer? Can they be a partner? Can they uh, provide access to to uh, some type of network I don't currently have access to? And I don't mean like a financial more investors like that world's actually finite. and once you're kind of in, you have access to that. But more, I would say, um, like advisors, like some of the really great firms have amazing advisor um, LP networks um, where you know there really are, these aren't just like famous celebrity names. These are, yeah, can I get a one hour phone call? with that person because they're super smart and they're a domain expert on something I'm thinking about one component, like pricing expert or a marketing expert in some way that's really phenomenal. So it's really that balance of saying, you know, who, who's a great investor who can write the check now and write the check later, which is also something you very much have to think about under terms that are like fair and aligned. And at the same time, um, can do more than that for me, can can make me better, make me and my team more effective and increase our probability of having the type of outcome that we all want. And, and I think, I mean, this isn't just my kind of line of thinking. Like, this is so much uh, the case more and more on the founder side that I think a lot of the more traditional venture firms um, haven't necessarily caught up to this. And I think it's created an opportunity for a lot of the newer firms to come in and say, look, yeah, of course, we're going to write a check. That's like table stakes. What we're really here to do is help support your success well beyond the money um and so it's a real kind of shifting landscape in the valley right now and and you know that's great for us in the founding side
0: absolutely and i think one firm that i think uh i think you'll probably agree stands out among the rest in terms of that specific uh trait is Andreessen horowitz uh has been very very uh bullish on on being a kind of a, a partner not just an investor um (laughs) <laughs> but yeah
1: excuse me so i i, I wanted i want to yeah go ahead sorry i apologize i was gonna say I, I don't know all the the history of it all but absolutely Andreessen horowitz is known for really if they didn't innovate this model they certainly leveled it up where there's a lot yeah. of services and we're now seeing many others signal fire certainly one of them um and there, there's others that um see their mission as being so much more than capital and kind of other vc network they see their mission as Supporting us young companies from idea to exit and everything Absolutely. in between, and it's it's phenomenal. Very very real services and support.
0: I want to just touch on one thing real quick before we get to the lightning round and we wrap this up. We mentioned earlier about uh, about the uh, autonomous trucks. I'm curious, in your opinion, how how, do, how will that impact your business, if at all? And are you excited about it? Worried about
1: it? You know, what are your thoughts on that? So. I love it, and it's phenomenal for our business. Um, one of the more difficult constraints, and I mean that literally and figuratively. Literally, constraint is a term we we use in in algorithms. How you you don't want an algorithm trying to combine everything on the planet Earth, right? You constrain it to say these are the more likely or more probable areas we want in our search space for you to try to create carpools with one another. Um, one of our primary constraints. Is related to humans on the truck driver side. How many pickups and deliveries can they or will they make in a day? Um, it's it's a challenge, right? You know, every time a truck driver uh, has to pull a 70 foot long, 80 thousand pound tractor trailer off the highway and back into a dock, it's like legitimately a lot of work. It's a lot of stress, and so it's uh, it's a constraint that we think about, and we're we're successfully pushing through. But obviously, an autonomous driving vehicle would would remove any of that, right? It would just be a function of like, how long are we occupying this asset? And there wouldn't be any kind of that human pain and suffering that goes into some of the components of, of what we all need in this industry. So um, I really, really love it. I, I think the question is, in my life cycle of this business, let's say between startup or, or inception and some type of exit in the public markets or a major acquisition, I'm just not so sure it'll come into play. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not the world's foremost expert on autonomous driving vehicles. I'm certainly a very interested party um, I do get the opportunity to meet a lot of very interesting folks that are right in the middle of this stuff um, you know, one of my major investors is is Google ventures and and Google's a, you know, owner major right. uh, shareholder <laughs> of Waymo and you know a lot of these guys and so and I'm talking to all these other founders all the time and getting to have a lot of these fun conversations and you know I mean, I own a Tesla, right? It's got an autopilot. Um, mm-hmm. People ask me what's that experience like, and I tell them, well, it's amazing, but it tries to murder me every day. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's definitely not like I love it. I, I'm an owner, you know, but um, it isn't it isn't really ready for prime time. So, um, if I threw a dart at it, I feel like we're really ten plus years out until autonomous driving in the trucking industry can can accomplish the last mile. So, what yeah. we will see, and we're beginning to see, is platooning you know, on the highway where you've got these things kind of synced up to one another driving down the road with a high degree of autonomy. Um, You know, there's still a driver on board for safety reasons. And, and I, and I, I do believe that will unfold pretty quickly, but if you can imagine like exiting the freeway, navigating, you know, neighborhoods and streets and kids and families and all that, and ultimately backing into a dock in the dark, you know, in some tight alleyway, in order to, I mean, if you think about all the use cases, this isn't just walmart and amazon as shippers and receivers it's also like your neighborhood 7-eleven you know or liquor store you know and all those different ways that this stuff needs to happen um i i i love it i hope it happens tomorrow but my guess is um flock will either be very significant and well on its way to changing the world Um, or not (laughs) by the time, um, autonomous really kind of takes a foothold, but I put it in the when, not if category. I mean, there's some real regulatory problems, not just the DOT. Yeah. Yeah. Do people feel safe with 80,000 pounds and a robot?
0: (laughs) Right. No, there definitely are some regulatory issues and I think those will be addressed. They, they, they probably will take longer than, than maybe perhaps the technology itself. Um, I worry about sometimes, but, um. Possible. And I, I think
1: in the face yeah. of the regulators. Yeah. Well,
0: Aaron, you made it to the end of uh, of the the episode. Of course, now we're actually going to do the lightning round, which is supported by Wix. You can create a professional website today at wix.com. That's w i x.com. So, Oren, whenever you're ready, you let me know, and we'll get started. Yeah, let's go for it. All right, here we go. Would you rather be able to read minds or teleport?
1: Oh, teleport! Reading minds sounds awful.
0: <laughs> Do you have any secret talents?
1: Um, I can read minds.
0: <laughs> nice. Uh, which celebrity would you most like to have a meal with?
1: Mm, Jesus. That's
0: a good one. If animals could talk, which would be the most annoying?
1: Um, very specifically, one of my cats. <laughs> <laughs> What's your cat's name? Well, one of them, the one that's an old Well, the, the one cat is <laughs> the official name is Azriel, but my two sons call her either and it's she either Asturd or Mike. <laughs> I
0: have I have two cats, uh, and one of one of them's named Zuck after yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, which was sure. he's he's like he's like nine years old now, so. This was a while ago. I, I'm not sure I would... Well, whatever. It's an all-other story. The other <laughs> one's Nala after The Lion King. Um, oh, okay. Last question for you. Texting or talking? Talking. I could. I was going to say, I feel like you like talking. <laughs> <laughs> I bet mean, you noticed. Yeah. Well, Oren, it's been great having you on. I, I, I learned a ton. I'm sure the audience did as well. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that or to learn more about Flock Freight?
1: Um, yeah, of course, you know, uh, flockfreight.com or feel free to drop me a note directly or O-R-E-N at flockfreight.com. I would certainly welcome any any feedback or interest in what we're working on. Awesome. Well,
0: thanks again. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
1: Thank you. You as well.
0: Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash best and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.